So let's turn in the Bible this morning to the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue our study. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 6, if you could stand. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word. We pray, God, that you would help us to see that which is true that we would leave behind the natural man so that the spiritual man could be nourished come to understand the mysteries of godliness. We pray, God, that Jesus is glorified this morning, that you'd hide me behind the cross, that we may behold his glory, the gospel would become sweet to us again. We pray, God, that you'd have your way, that you would teach us wondrous things from your law. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, as we began this chapter, um, I think Tony gave us a really helpful distinction to help us see what faith is as a concept versus what an expression of faith is. And it's really helpful to see that distinction, to think through that distinction, to think about faith in and of itself as the substance of hope, understanding that we're placing trust in someone who is worthy of our trust. An expression of faith is taking that faith in acting or informing an action. So we're, we're getting ready to look at these various expressions of faith as we go forward. And this chapter is often called the Hall of Faith. And the faith that we'll see expressed here is not a blind faith, or it's not a faith that substitutes from reality. It's not something that you use in order to, as a, to, to cope with hard circumstances, trusting in something blindly in order to make it through the difficulty. But this faith is placed in one by whom all things consist and through whom all things exist. With Scripture as our guide, we're going to discover and develop a faith that is sure. These inspired words from Scripture are God's mechanism for helping us understand who He is, why He is worthy, how we can be strengthened and encouraged in this faith. 
This is a faith that should set us free. This is a faith that as we trust and begin to understand more of who God is, we are set free from our inhibitions, our limitations. It gives us an anchor of hope. This is not a faith where we're left wading around in darkness, hoping for something to stick. As John chapter 1 says, it exposes the light. It reveals true purpose and beauty in this world. The fact is, we've gone through all these chapters in Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews has been giving a sense of what it means to build up ourselves in our most holy faith, as the writer of Jude says. And Jude's going to help us a lot this morning, and we will build up our most holy faith as we look at these expressions from people being recorded in history. And these expressions of faith will serve to help spur us along, or even the audience who's reading this text at that time. These these recordings here are helping to spur along these believers who face adverse circumstances and, and, and difficult decisions of how to persevere and what it means to trust God despite things seeming to fall apart around them. These expressions of faith help them to continue on, remembering that God will not fail them. We could likely think of modern expressions of faith that have inspired us, encouraged us as believers. Tomorrow, the nation's going to take a day to reflect on the contributions of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, whose life in all of the sacrifices, all the struggle, and all of the pain, and, and, and ultimately the many notable accomplishments that we can look back on are mostly significant, I would say primarily significant, in that we can look at his faith informing his actions. That's the primary way I'd rather reflect on the contributions of Dr. King, and the result is a legacy that testifies to his trust in the living God. We look at that and we look at others, modern examples of those who would trust in God and do mighty works in his name. This week and going forward, we're going to explore these expressions of faith from people who lived in an era of human history that we could hardly even imagine. It's not a light thing to go back to Genesis and try to put together a picture of what it looked like to live during that time. And while we may be amazed at the things that they did and the circumstances they overcame, we must keep in mind that these were expressions of faith. We're not faith itself, but the things that they did were because of their trust in God. Their actions were born of faith in God. We paraphrase these testimonies, not telling the entire story necessarily in these verses, but we can still reflect on them with a sense of wonder and awe. And then as we do, Let's also remember that there's one phrase attached to each one of these recorded instances. 
one phrase that you're going to continue to see throughout the rest of this chapter. By faith. By faith. The trust is in the true and living God. And as this writer has gone to great lengths to show us, God is revealed in Jesus Christ. So I give you all that to, uh, I guess, land on this statement that may seem like it, it should be more of an apology as you go later on, because what I'm going to do today is I'm going to attempt to try to pack about three or four sermons into one. Because as you read these verses, there's reason to, to visit with each one of these verses for an extended period of time. But we're, we're going to cram them together and, and come to a, a full conclusion about what God is saying in just these few verses. So we'll start out with Abel's faith. Again, we're in the book of Genesis with, with Abel, and if you want to see kind of what's the, the reference point for this account of Abel's faith, you go to Genesis 4. But before we start talking about Abel, it's important to understand that it, to, to see what Abel's faith was or to, to even develop a sense of the significance of Abel's faith, you first have to contrast his sacrifice with Cain's sacrifice. Even understand why Abel's faith was significant, we look at Cain's sacrifice. And in doing so, we compare the faith of Abel to the way of Cain, as Jude 11 says. So if you like, you can go to Genesis 4. I'm going to go there right now just to make sure that we are seeing what we should see here. Genesis 4, beginning at verse 3, we see the way of Cain unfold. And verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now we read this text, and sometimes you read this text and you may assume that as you, as you see this particular point of the sacrifice happening, that this is the first time a sacrifice before the Lord has happened. This is the first time that this event is, is being recorded in history. Therefore, this is the first time that this has happened. And, and maybe you, you read this text and you say, okay, I'm going to read through the rest of the story. What's the big deal about God not being pleased with Cain's offering versus Abel? Because God makes a definitive decision, says he's pleased with, with Abel's offering, and Cain's is not something that's accepted. Before we get there, this, this in the course of time phrase is very important to understand. With that phrase, we can imply that Cain and Abel are grown. They are adults. They're not children who are trying to reason through what this sacrifice actually means. In the course of time means that some significant amount of time has passed. This indication is derived from this phrase because when it is used, it typically is, is articulated as in the process of time 
or at the end of time, at the end of a certain amount of days. So concluding that Cain and Abel are adults is important because we can then imply, rationally imply, that there have been many more sacrifices before this point. They have offered up sacrifices many more times up to this point. This is not the first time they're stepping into this and trying to understand what it means. It's not an introduction to the practice of offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And the way of Cain, we're taking a look at that in verse 3, is unveiled in that Cain had decided that this sacrifice, this time, should come from the works of his own hands. He had taken stock in his ability to offer something to God that he believed would be pleasing. The verse prior to that tells us that Cain is a worker of the ground. Abel is a keeper of the sheep. So we know that if he's an adult at this point, he's probably gotten his skill set down to a science. He's tilling the ground. He's understanding what it means to, to work with vegetation and agriculture. And so this sacrifice that he's going to offer to God is going to be a significant portion of his crop. But the problem is, is that he had presumed upon God's will. He presumed on God's good pleasure by offering a gift of his own effort. He assumed, because of how good, and he, good he had gotten at his craft, that God would be pleased or prefer a sacrifice of his own standards, of Cain's standards. This sacrifice that he was going to offer was going to represent Cain's ability to present beauty. And as you look at that and understand why God did not accept this, you can simply conclude that Cain's was one of the first recorded examples of a faith by works faith in the works of his own hands, a presumption that what he had done was enough. So we see the way of Cain, his own hands, what he had done is enough. The sacrifice was from the fruit of his own labor. We contrast that with the faith of Abel, his faith is revealed in that he trusted in what God had established. If this is not the first time the sacrifice had been offered, then he had already known what a typical sacrifice to God should look like. He had already understood what was acceptable before God. He had already been able to develop a standard of what to believe in in order for God to be pleased. And the sacrifices that had been offered up to this point, the offering of an animal was purposeful. This is not just some law that God had placed on them in order for them to figure out what he meant. The offering of an animal was purposeful. 
The offering of a slain animal was a picture of the atonement where God had provided a sacrifice to cover man's sin. Cain and Abel had likely been taught this by their parents, Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve had sinned before God, exposing their nakedness. They realized they were naked. They hid from God. God kills an animal and provides covering from, for them, taking their shame, covering their sin. So Abel's offering was not this faith or trust in the work of his own hands, but trust in the provision of God as sufficient. Abel's faith was demonstrated in that he trusted in God's grace alone. He didn't put stock in what he was able to do. He trusted in this expression of God's grace. Abel's sacrifice was a display of faith. It was expressed through obedience. And ultimately, in Hebrews 11, it's commended as righteous. It's important to see this, this contrast here between the way of Cain and the faith of Abel. The prophet Samuel, centuries later, would tell King Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. Saul had, had done something to offer God a, a sacrifice that he thought was pleasing, and Samuel was saying, your obedience to what God has commanded is better than whatever you think God would want as a sacrifice. As we talked about last week in the difference between faith and presumption, presumption could be summed up in saying that this is a confidence in what we think God would want versus, in, versus trusting in what God has already declares He wants where we have a confidence in what we would offer God based on what we think is good and pleasurable versus what God has already said pleases Him and brings glory to His name. Because Abel displays this faith, he still speaks to us today. Despite his tragic end, despite his brother murdering him out of jealousy, which also speaks to the motive of Cain's sacrifice, he offers this sacrifice, which is the work of his hands. God rejects it. He does not accept it as being pleased and, 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 and actually something that glorifies his name. He rejects it. So then Cain becomes jealous of Abel and murders him. The anger and the rage that Cain displays speaks to his own self-righteousness. So Abel is killed, and yet his witness, his testimony, still speaks to us today. This witness is ours, where we can see his confidence in the atonement, his obedience to God's command, his righteous standing before God, all 
testify to the faith that we have in God. Abel's sacrifice was an act of worship. And it's something that we should remember in our corporate gatherings. As we offer to God a sacrifice of worship corporately expressed, it doesn't start with what we want to give. It starts with what our faith expresses, our faith and our trust in what God has done. Our expression comes from that. As we continue on, we see Enoch recorded as another example of faith. Now, Enoch is a shadowy person in Scripture, to say the least. And if you, if you have maybe familiarity with Catholic background, perhaps you're familiar with the book of Enoch associated with the Apocrypha. And recently I was engaged in a, in a conversation with a friend about the mysteries of the book of Enoch and are we missing out because Enoch is not contained in Scripture and having all these discussions of whether or not it was worth studying to gain some perspective and knowledge. My answer to him was an answer I'd give anyone. Sure, maybe worth a read or maybe even a period of study. It may be worth that even. And I would just say that because it's historically a piece of literature that's been preserved. It's something that we can look at and gain information from. However, there's a big difference between something that's a good read versus something that is God-breathed. You can read and gain information from all kinds of literary works. There are authors today who are Christian leaders and pastors who offer all kinds of information that is good for us to understand, contextualize, and and even be sharpened to some degree. But it's a difference between that and something that is inspired by God. There's a different category that you read and interpret those kinds of literary works. And although Enoch is is somewhat of a shadowy person in Scripture, and there are less than 200 total words devoted to his life, we can be confident that everything that we need to know about him is recorded in the canon of Scripture. We can be confident that everything that we have to see here as we look at Hebrews chapter 11 Acknowledging his profound faith is captured in Scripture. So let's do that. Again, we're looking at a time in human history that's extraordinary. And Enoch's example of faith was so extraordinary that he did not die a physical death. Again, take a peek back at Genesis 5. 21 through 24, to get a sense of what manner of man he was. And if you want to squeeze juice from a turnip, you can find out some information 
But I was left with, with a, a few things that I learned from those few verses. He lived over three and a half centuries on earth. That's pretty phenomenal. Three and a half centuries living on planet earth. I'm sure we can think 300 years ago and wonder whether or not we would have wanted to live that long. He's the father of Methuselah, who was actually the longest living man recorded in Scripture. He lived over 900 years. So he came from, Methuselah came from good stock. Another thing you can learn is that Enoch walked with God. And that's significant for a number of reasons we'll explore here in a second. And then lastly, God took him. That phrase, that small phrase, is not worthy just of, of just a quick glance and, okay, I understand what that means. God took him. He took him off of earth to be with him. We'll come back to that. That's the Genesis account from Jude verses, four, verses 14 and 15, excuse me. We learn that Enoch was also a prophet with, an, with a pretty intense ministry. He proclaimed all kinds of judgments on earth at that time. So Enoch's just not just floating around enjoying his 300 years in this sense of prehistoric retirement. He's pronouncing judgments that God has given him to share. So that's all we've got on Enoch. And yet Hebrews 11 mentions him in the aforementioned hall of faith. The text in Hebrews 11 centers on the fact that he walked with God. And he walked with God. He enjoyed the presence of God. And what this is basically saying is that Enoch had fellowship with God. And that his interaction with the Lord of heaven and earth correlates faith with intimacy. Enoch's faith was informed by communion with God. Such a privilege that, that we can even look at it in this way. It comes right off of the reflection of what it looked like for Adam and Eve to interact with God in the garden. Where when God is looking for Adam and Eve. It doesn't seem like it's an abnormal occurrence in Genesis chapter 3 when God is walking through the garden in the cool of the day. It seems to be an expression of what was normal at that time, this, this interaction with God and man being together in this place of paradise seems to be something that ultimately shows us how significantly beautiful Eden was in that time in history. Enoch, having communion and fellowship with God, expressed ultimately in that he's being commended here. 
And how he's commended is that he is pleasing to God. He's pleased God. It's important to just extract that, that, that very simple point that communion with God pleases God. And there's no communion with God without faith. We can look at Jude 14 and 15 and read those words and, and conclude that his prophetic ministry may have seemed heavy-handed and scary. Wow, this is what this guy is saying during that period of time. This is before Moses. This is before Noah. This is before everybody. And he's declaring these things at that time to the people who lived. That's pretty scary. But Enoch walked with God. And as a result of his fellowship and communion with God, those prophecies, those prophetic forms of ministry that, that we see in just those couple of verses show Enoch's faith in God amongst the, God, the godless. In this close communion with God, he finds that there is a necessity of the time to proclaim these truths about God. And because he does, he's commended as one who pleased God. His communion, his fellowship with the Lord strengthened his faith so that his reward should fill our hearts with wonder that a man can walk with God in such a way to have communion and fellowship with him. The design of their relationship was not left to the physical end of his circumstances. He literally was taken up with God, not seeing a physical death. This kind of fellowship with God is, is not something that we just imagine in a dreamy scenario where we're doing all the right things at all the right times, but the closeness of communion, which could include repentance and confession, concludes his life in that God takes him, that he was and then he was not because God had taken him. Wow. That's, that's pretty phenomenal. So we continue on and we find that, okay, so these two examples are what's before us. And from these two examples, we learn that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So to conclude, I want to leave you with three ways that faith pleases God. Number one, it rests in God. Number two, it reveals God. Number three, it rewards us with God. Rest. Faith as this disarming, humble, intentional, defined faith is the way we please God. And honestly, it strikes at the heart at what a lot of believers struggle with. 
Because as, as much as we can agree and amen the reality that faith pleases God, we're naturally drawn to our tendencies to do something in order to, pre- to please God. Where we, we feel like we can just jump over that hurdle that says, okay, we believe that faith is the way that we are called righteous, the way that we are justified, the way that, that God is pleased with us. We can jump right over that and say, okay, now what do I do? What needs to be done in order for me to continue with this right standing? We really should just rest, camp out in the reality that God is pleased when we trust in him. We should stay right there. He is pleased when we trust in him. That moment, that time where the circumstances have crashed down and we don't know what the next move is, but we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is strong. We know that God is faithful. That moment, God is pleased. Before we take the next step, before we do the next action, he is pleased with our faith. There are no grand displays of devotion or impressive exploits that overtake the sweetness of just taking him at his word, to rest upon his promises, just to know that he has said it and it is reality. As we've seen many times in the book of Hebrews, the old covenant puts man's righteousness at the forefront. And the new covenant tells us that What he has done is enough. We can trust him. We can rest in him. Secondly, faith reveals God. Verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please him. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. The one who approaches God must believe that he exists. And that phrase is much deeper than just this simple acknowledgement that there is a God. This intellectually dismissive conclusion that we could come to and say, yeah, there, you know, Most people who are polled in society could acknowledge that there is a God. This belief that he exists speaks to the definition of who he is. Where we have to contend with the true and living God and all that he has been revealed to be. We're not just intellectually assigning a definition to a reality that there could be a God in this existence. We look at nature and we can conclude that, okay, that doesn't make sense. There must be a God. We look at an outcome and say, oh, that's kind of miraculous. That lo- it looks like there, there must be a God here. Okay, I can, I can assign that to my intellect and just keep moving. 
but to contend with who he is. The reality of who he has been revealed to be in Scripture is something that you cannot just intellectually ascend to, acknowledge, and move on. You're grappled with that reality. Who he has been revealed to be is much greater than a conclusion we could come to. To believe that he exists acknowledges that he is a masterful designer and creator. To acknowledge that he is the Lord of all said creation. That he is the everlasting God and Father. The most high God. The Lord of hosts. The mighty God. The merciful high priest. Wonderful counselor. Prince of peace. Rose of Sharon. The lily of the valley. The righteous judge. The prince of peace. The Lord provider. The one who reigns in victory. The Alpha the omega, the beginning, the end, the bright and morning star, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what this is. That's quite different than acknowledging intellectually that there is a God. We're all of history and reality just weighs down in you and reveals this great and absolutely awesome Savior. Because the writer of Hebrews has taken extensive descriptive measures to confirm that this God is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faith that rests, faith that reveals the faith that rewards. We can be confident that there is a reward for those who would seek God. And we read this verse, verse 6, and concludes by saying that he rewards those who seek him. And the King James Version adds a word and says he rewards those who diligently seek him. Now, it's, it's not adding a work to the concept of faith, but the translation lends towards somewhat of an energy-expending search informed by scrutiny and strict investigation and craving. So as you look at that phrase, you're not just left with seeking as a concept that begins with you, but there's this internal craving, there's this strict scrutiny, there's, there, is a, there is an investigation process to where you seek to know him and explore all of the, the, the cascades of information about who he is, what scripture tells us. It seeks to explore the depths of all truth and reality about this God. And for those Carmen San Diego Christians, he is a rewarder. He is someone who rewards the process, the search for all that he is. This intrinsic desire to know him, to want him, to need him in this way that cries out from the very fiber of our being is not something alien or foreign to us. 
Those of us who are redeemed, those of us who have literally been remade and and, and created as new, this is something that is present within all of us, a desire for Him, an inclination towards Him. Psalm 84 and 2 says, "My, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And in this search, in this investigative journey, in this craving for who He is, we find that the reward is Him. We find that the reward is all that He is said that He is. We find that this reward is not just some physical blessing that falls out of the sky. We don't even find that that this this is a, a temporary distraction from our circumstances. We find that he is who he says he is. And that is our reward. When he says that he will keep you in the midst of the most difficult trials, we find that to be true. When you you seek him and you find that he gives you peace that surpasses all understanding that keeps your heart and mind, you find that to be true. You find that he has literally died in such a way that all of your sins have been accounted for and that the blood he shed is enough for you. In your seeking, you conclude that he is telling the truth. And as our faith drives us to fellowship and communion with him, We are always rewarded. Those who live by faith are always rewarded. One of my favorite texts that I've just read throughout my walk with Christ, Psalm 37, 25 through 26, where David says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. I've heard that text used to speak of tangible blessings, where you feel some sort of physical need has to be filled. But to look at this text with a different lens, you can conclude that, yes, throughout the world, there are actually hungry and poor Christians. So it can't just conclude in the realm of physical blessings or tangible promises. You have to conclude from that that this text must speak of finding our sufficiency in him. To hear David say that I once was young, knowing 
the trajectory of his life. I once was young, and now I am old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken. I have never seen his children begging for bread. Speaks to an all-powerful God who cares for us with a care that we could not have ever imagined. His righteous are never forsaken. He is ever lending generously. He is the reward. We're going to go into a time where we all participate in the Lord's Supper. And as a community, we are expressing faith through this sacrament expressing that Christ has accomplished all that we would need. We're expressing our rest in the finished work of Christ. We're, express, we're, we're, we're expressing a faith that tells everyone that what he has done reveals the true and living God. And we are also actively taking in, partaking in the reward. So as we pass the elements around, if you do not know Jesus or do not trust in Jesus, I'm going to ask for you to let those elements pass. Take him. Find out if what you've heard this morning is true. Seek him. Trust in him. Don't just be satisfied with the physical elements. Take him. And once you've trusted in him, and once that has become the reality and the way that that you see the entire world around you and informs the way you engage with the world around you, then join us as we express our faith in taking these sacraments. Let's pray. Lord, you are good and your mercy endures forever. We thank you so much, again, for showing your trustworthiness. As we trust in you with all of our being, you are pleased. We thank you for faith, gift that you've graced us with. We thank you for setting aside all human work and effort, all of the confidence that we may develop in our abilities just to be pleased through a mechanism of simply surrendering and trusting in you. We thank you, God, because you're glorified in that expression. You have declared us righteous. We pray that we rest in your promises. Lord, use your word as only you can. Enlighten us, illuminate to us ways that we can trust you more and more and more. And we thank you that our faith is rewarded by seeing you more clearly, being brought into deeper communion with you and that fellowship that we have with you. While it may not be as Enoch where 
we may have a physical death, we have also the same promise that we will be with you forever. We thank you, we love you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.